0: good morning church listen I was thinking about this we uh we've all complained about the weather for quite some time now and this weekend we had some sun did we not so if you come in here with all that extra vitamin d and you're not interacting with me and there's not any energy or worship in this room we have a problem okay uh I want to welcome you here once again. My name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors. And if you brought your Bible or a device, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're making our way through this letter that's penned by the Apostle Paul to a a region uh, of churches in Ephesus. Last week, uh, Roy, uh, the other pastor, the lead pastor here, he he walked us through the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And listen, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is like that paramount passage in the Bible that anybody who wants to just understand the central message of the Christian faith goes to. Uh, Paul just writes, Christian, you were dead. You were following the world. You were taking all the bait from the evil one. You were throwing yourself at sin. You were destined for God's wrath. You were placing your hope in fleeting things like the Nebraska football program. All of that changed when God sent his son Jesus to die a sinner's death in your place. Now God's grace and his mercy are available to you through faith in Jesus. And not only does God want to save your life, but God also wants to shape your life. God has a a pen. He's the great poem writer. He is the one who wants to make your life a masterpiece unto his glory. Uh, His work has only just begun But here's the thing, we take this Bible quite often, I want to apologize in advance for all the saints in the room for whatever happens with this microphone on my ear. Um, Yeah, maybe I need to go handheld, I don't know. But when you read your Bible, think about this, we have a really tragic problem today uh, in our Western society, uh, Western culture, we read all the good news that the Bible tells us about God and his love for us and the person and work of Jesus, and we say, Jesus, thank you for loving me jesus thank you for saving me jesus thank you for making me new thank you for giving me hope is that wrong no but the more proper way for us to read our bible is to say jesus thank you for saving us jesus thank you for moving us towards you thank you for reconciling us to you god thank you for giving us new life See, there's this problem we have where everything in the Christian faith today tends to be very individualistic. It has much to do with our vertical relationship to God on a personal level and our private devotion. It has little to do with our horizontal relationships with one another. In fact, Paul, even though he thanks God for this church in Ephesus, loving one another, he still sees it fit to give all these verses and these passages to talk to them about the issue of prejudice. I believe that was brought up last week. And prejudice, I understand, is a, is a very charged word, and let's not let our culture rob prejudice for, for what it actually is. In, in a broad sense, prejudice is defined as this. Do I do want me to make you guys wait for the definition? Yeah. Check, check, check. Y'all can hear me. No more pops, no more cracks. I love feeling, feeling like a Hillsong pastor up here with a mic in my hand as I preach. It's my worst nightmare. Woo! All right, so here's the thing. The issue in the church in Ephesus is the same issue that we face today, and it is a prejudice. It's an issue uh, that's long been in our hearts. And uh, my prayer this morning is that as we work through this passage, we are not so quick to deny that there is any prejudice in us Prejudice really is this, it's a preconceived opinion or conclusion about somebody. It's a preconceived opinion or conclusion that we've drawn about someone before we really know them. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to paint a picture of the kind of prejudice that existed between the Jewish people toward all of those people who were not Jewish called Gentiles. And he's going to go to great lengths to say that that kind of hostility and any other kind of dividing wall that keeps the people of God from being one it finds its remedy in Jesus. It's no more in Jesus. Paul is looking at a young church with amazing potential. He's looking at a church that wants and longs for the love for Jesus and a faith in Jesus to be true of itself. And he's saying, Hey, I have a huge threat toward the church. It's the hostility that we would carry toward one another. It's not always big, vocal, outcried hostility, right? It's subtle. It's small little walls that we create in our heart. It's small prejudices that we create where we look at someone and we feel like we've already drawn the conclusion about who they are, where they stand, and how we're different from them rather than how we're the same. So I believe that the the message that Paul is delivering is the title of my sermon this morning, and it's this, no, really, we are one in Christ. No, really, we are one in Christ Christ. What I want to demonstrate to us through this passage is that in light of what Jesus has done for us, it can be embarrassingly easy for us to have pride in our differences. It can be way too easy to nurse what offends us. It can be way too easy to get comfortable in our subtle prejudice. And in doing so, not only do we hinder the task that God has appointed to this church, but we also can make a mockery of Jesus Christ. And I don't think any of us wants to do that. I want you to pick it up with me in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what Paul says. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, that's a derogatory term by what is called the circumcision, what the Jews would have called themselves, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in The world. I want to pause right there. Context is really important. Church, there's no getting around this. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were God's chosen people. They had immense spiritual privilege in the world. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans 9, 4, and 5: God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. So listen, all these things that the Jewish people identified with, all these covenants of promise, what they did was they united people. They united a nation to God, and this was felt, and it was experienced in the Jewish community. There was so much sense of togetherness. The the promises of God for the Jewish people were the tie, the glue, the anchor that church life and family life felt. It gave them a sense of camaraderie. gave them a sense of, of, of linked arms. Everybody just got it, right? Just one of us, you, you get it. So a Gentile, somebody who comes from a, a pagan nation that doesn't worship Yahweh, when that person wants to come into the church because of the work of Jesus, things get uncomfortable. I want you to imagine the, a person who worships the goddess Artemis the city of Ephesus, decides they don't want to do that anymore, they don't want to engage in sexual activity to worship her, the goddess of fertility, and they'd walk into the church, and they know nothing of, of Jewish background, but they want to worship Yahweh, they want to worship God, they want to know God, they understand Jesus, they believe in Jesus, things are going to get pretty uncomfortable. It's just an example. What happens is they, they come, and they're vulnerable. They're not secure amongst these people, they They have little standing, little defense, little familiarity. They have no concept of being connected and knowing the right people. Church, it's it's likely that the vast majority of us here in this room, if not all of us, are in this Gentile category. Paul is saying, please remember this. This was your state, this was your reality before Jesus. Apart from him, you were excluded. You were friendless, you were stateless, you had no hope of forgiveness. For sin, you had no hope of eternal life, no hope of real relationship with God. You were far from him, and you were helpless. Your diagnosis was terrible. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that's the the rituals and rites of the Jewish community, and he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, that's Jesus, and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You know, there are people um, here in this room right now who have felt very far off from God. Um, There are people in this room who have felt very near to God. Perhaps there are people in this room who have, for most of their life, felt a nearness to God. Grew up in the church. Family were believers. Grew up reading the Bible and Bible stories and looking at pictures of Jesus and stories about Jesus. And there are people who grew up very far from God. Seated in this room this morning are people with different economic backgrounds. Believe it or not, there's a spectrum of political background in this room. There's a spectrum of theological background, a spectrum of ethnic and family background in this room. Surprise! We're not all carbon copies of one another. What kind of media should a Christian watch or not watch? What form of education should a Christian's kids receive? Here's a great conversation starter that I love. If I ever meet somebody for the first time on Sunday morning, what are your opinions about COVID-19, uh, masks, vaccinations? There are folks like my wife who worked hard to get a bachelor's degree in an above perfect GPA, highest distinction in their class. And then there are people like her husband who lived by the motto in his undergraduate, C's get degrees. Can I get an amen? We're not the same. There is uh, an unchurched California boy who played football at the highest level that decided to team up with a churched Kansas boy who played tennis in high school (laughs) to plant a church. This is what Jesus does. The reason that friendship and fellowship are so prevalent in this community, the reason that we are willing to step over lines that typically divide us to endure with one another, to bear with one another, is because we now belong To Jesus. First point this morning is we have been bought back. God has purchased us back. First Peter 1 18 and 19, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. First Peter two, nine says we are a people for God's possession. Acts twenty twenty eight says that Jesus obtained us. We have a new master, we have a new Lord, Christians, which are those people who have given their faith and their surrender to Jesus. No matter how different and diverse we may be right now, sitting in this room this morning, our oneness is so precious to God. It is utterly precious to him. So much so that Paul says in verse 13, we're all near to God by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, our hostility is broken in his flesh. Verse 16, we are reconciled through the cross. This isn't a cute or clever thing to talk about. And this is not unity for unity's sake. This is what Jesus fought to the very end to accomplish for his people and purchased with his blood. Where there is division in the church, on a myriad of secondary issues, it is an affront to the gospel. It is an affront to the precious blood of Jesus that saves us. We have been bought back. Second thing I want to show you this morning is that we have been made new. In this same chapter, back in verse 5, Paul says we've been made alive together in Christ. In verse 10, he says you've been created in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, Jesus has made us one. In verse 15, he creates in himself one new Man, you see the recreating work that God does in the life of a Christian. I want to say this, and listen, maybe we never forget this. God doesn't make us better. God makes us new. The early Christians called themselves a third race, a new race. When Paul says one new man in place of the two, that word new, in the Greek it is kinos. It's not new in chronology. It's not the latest update to an operating system. It's not an upgraded version of something. The church is not a better group of people, but an altogether new people group on planet Earth. In verses 18 and 19, Paul writes, For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God Paul is saying we have a new citizenship with one another. And I want you to miss this. every believer, no matter where they are in their journey of faith, if they've bowed their knee to Jesus, every believer has the same power and protection from heaven. Every believer is as cherished by God as any other believer. He's saying we make up a new family. You're not just individually saved by God's grace, but you've been made a brother or sister in Christ to a family. You are a member of a new and everlasting family that will sing a song for eternity that's pictured in Revelation 5-9. Jesus, you were slaughtered. Your blood has ransomed people from God from what? Every tribe, language, people, and nation. Y'all, I, I lost my place. I I ended up taking a bunch of notes before this. Because God's just doing a work in me right now in our church. And I'm longing and praying that we would see the significance of this passage. I need us to understand the implication of this truth. Do you know what this means? This means that our identities are no longer fixed on anything other than Jesus' blood. Christian, you have a new bloodline. There is a new blood from Jesus in you. We not only benefit miraculously from the blood of Jesus' death. Amen? We also are recipients of the blood of his life. It flows through the Christian. That means that who we are doesn't come by virtue of our birth, our heritage. Yes, we have an ethnic identity. Yes, we have a family name. Yes, we have a vocation, a career, accomplishments we're proud of. Yes, we have the results of a personality test. Yes, we have a residence in a neighborhood. But more than any of that, we are Christian. I want to read to you a story that would have been a lot easier to grab hold of and open if I would have had an over-ear mic in this moment. <laughs> so petty, had to say it. There's a young woman named Lydia who tires of her stead and proper upbringing in Lake Wobegon. She moves to New Orleans and takes up in the revel- revelry until It, too, becomes routine. She longs for something more. Eventually, she discovers that the something more is to feel important to someone, to be cherished and loved. She takes up with a man that she has met amidst all the parties. He moves in with her, but he cannot leave aspects of his revelry that have become compulsive in his life. He cannot keep a job, but gives her the job of picking up his beer bottles that daily litter the floor and the sofa, She eventually tires of him, too. One day, she leaves a month's rent on the TV and leaves him asleep at midday to make life on his own. She takes the bus back to Lake Wobegon. They whisper about her there. Her days of ill repute generate much conversation over coffee at the local cafe where she now works. Though she's back at home, she's a foreigner. Familiar surroundings only make her feel more alien, reminding her that she does not belong there. She goes to her parents' home for Thanksgiving. She sits at the table but feels out of place, not at home, although she is at home. So as soon as the pie is eaten and the dishes are piled at the kitchen sink, she goes to a remote part of the living room to escape the relatives who now seem alien to her. Tracing her hand along the fireplace mantle, she glances over all the familiar objects in their familiar places, and then she sees an unfamiliar picture. It is her picture from her senior year in high school. There she is fresh faced with every hair in place, but there is something different about the picture now. Beneath her image in the frame is stuck a little label typed from her father's old Remington typewriter. It simply says, our Lydia. How strange to be labeled in one's own house and yet Lydia knows the purpose. In front of the world, and against all the whispers, this was her father's announcement to everyone who came into the house and knew nothing or everything about her. This is our Lydia. This hour meant so much. Those three letters were as jewels to her, each one a diamond that says she was treasured in this house. No matter how far she traveled in distance or behavior, no matter how foreign her place or practices. No matter what has transpired, no matter the time passed, no matter the rumors told or the truth revealed. Amidst all the transitions and enduring beyond them, she was a member of this family. She was our Lydia. This is the story of every person who has made the profession that Jesus is God, That the forgiveness of sin comes from his shed blood. And that he is alive and coming back. Every one of those people abroad and right here in city like Bennington has been bought back And made new by God. New blood, new life, a new citizenship, and a new family. Why? Verse 20. It's a family built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Church, I want you right now to think of people in your life, perhaps people in this room that you have a relationship with. In your family. In your city group. In your huddle. I want you to imagine God putting his arm around you, pointing to that person and saying, that's my child. That person I bought with blood, precious to me. You have a million differences from them. Who cares? <laughs> you are both mine. This is what Jesus can do. The answer, the answer to our, our subtle hostilities dividing walls between us is Jesus. The answer to the hardness of heart that we might feel toward others because of where they land on a particular issue or situation culturally is second to Jesus. If we don't believe that Jesus can actually unite us, then of course we will faction. If we don't believe that Jesus can do this, then of course we will polarize and demonize and strong-arm one another. Of course we will create an us-and-them mentality. Of course we will be quick to resent and question one another. But the good news is that Jesus can do this, and the good news is that Jesus has done this. The era in which the church in Ephesus was birthed was an era where Romans hated and looked down their nose at non-Romans where Jews hated non-Jews, where Greeks hated non-Greeks, and in the middle of all of it was a gathering of a new people group that had Romans and Jews and Greeks and men and women and young and old and rich and poor and religious and irreligious and prideful and ashamed all together, and, 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 and worshiping Jesus. That's how amazing grace is. That's the magnitude of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we esteem and exalt Jesus He brings us together. No, really. We really are one in Christ. Church, can we start to see those in the body of Christ who are different from us as very similar to us? What we find annoying or messed up in others, what we judge in others, is really just an expression of the human nature that we share with them. There is corruption in all our lives. There's sin in all of us. There remains weakness and selfishness, pride, self-obsession in all of us. And yet... See anyone who's bowed their knee to Jesus, we are in Christ, apart from which none of us would have any hope. Amen. Mark 2, 17, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What are you boasting in today? I think of songs where we sing I have, Nothing to boast in but Jesus. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. When we lack ongoing forgiveness, when we hold people in debt to us, when we hold on to hostilities, it becomes ammo, powerful, locked and loaded, ready to fire the moment that person disagrees. It bolsters our own identity. Makes us feel a sense of superiority. Can we just do something as a church, not only here at CLB, but abroad, across our city, the big C church? Instead of assuming the worst, can we believe the best in our brothers and sisters in Christ? Finally, I want to show you that we're growing together. We're all headed somewhere together. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. Paul says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also Being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. These words right here at the close of of this section, they are both present tense and future tense. There's progressive language here. We are joined, church, but we are also being joined together. CLB, we are built, but we are also being built together. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we are growing together into God's dwelling place. Could it be that there are folks in this room so different from you, they've experienced God's character in a way that you have not? They've experienced an attribute of our holy God in a way that you have not. And you could stand to learn something from them. There are stories that God is writing in this room that look very different from yours and mine. This picture, in closing, is a picture of, of a church with whom God has not done yet. It, it, it's this, this motto that we carry behind the scenes that nobody's story is ever over. And that everybody in the body of Christ is always fighting spiritual battles. So why are we so quick to condemn? No, really, we are one in Christ. I want to close this morning by talking to you about communion. We're going to partake of that this morning. And isn't it, Fitting, um, unplanned that we would be in this text on a morning where we take communion (laughs) Um, isn't there something so leveling about coming to partake of the broken body and the shed blood of jesus and to do that alongside everyone in the room who looks and acts and may think in different ways than you in scripture Communion is a really serious thing, um, where so much so that people who had grievances against one another were told, hey, solve that, forgive that, reconcile that, because you've both been reconciled to God before you partake in communion. So I just want to ask you by way of application this morning, where are you holding on and nursing hostilities in you toward other people in the body of Christ? How does partaking in communion, Christian, change that for you? How does seeing Jesus and his cross looming larger and larger and larger and larger all the way into eternity change that for you? I want to read from Matthew chapter 26. Uh, I invite people who are going to be giving communion to head to the tables Terry, are you doing this? Oh, great, get up here. Let me pray, and then Terry's going to come up and do this. I love our culture. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to pause now and say thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we are a new people in you. Thank you that we are not stuck where we are, but that a core value of our church and the core value of a Christian is that of change. You are moving us somewhere, but, oh, God, would we be patient with one another? God, would we believe the best in one another? Would we see one another as children of the most high, purchased by the blood of Jesus? Would we give forgiveness and patience? God, um, we pray this morning that we would actually believe the truth that we really are one in you. Pray that you would tear down, crush the work of the enemy that brings division in the church. God, I thank you for a church like City Light Bennington where I have been witness to so much togetherness, so much unity, so much joy, love, laughter, friendship. God, I've had differences with people, and we have still been eager to maintain a spirit of unity. That comes by your grace and your presence in us. We pray, God, that your work, your kingdom work here in Bennington and beyond would not be halted by the divisions among us, but that instead, God, because of our unity, we would charge forward and take new ground for your gospel. We're asking, Jesus, that we would not give the enemy an opportunity to make a mockery of you, but that our church would be a place where people come in who are looking for God and they find a clear path toward him, that we would be a church that does not create barriers that you yourself do not create. Oh, God, let it be. Amen.